Today's episode is brought to you by Slow Tide. Towels, blankets, ponchos, slowtide.co is their website. Our promo code is just one word, lowercase, surf podcast. And with it, you save 20%. They are known for having the best changing poncho in the business. Well, now they make a waterproof version. So same warmth, same dual access kangaroo pocket, same button snaps and drawstring collar, but with a nylon outer shell to slick wetness away. It is completely waterproof. Their other big innovation are the quick dry towels. I've talked about this in the past. Um, Rather than being a thick plush towel, they are thin and lightweight. They are perfect for travel because they actually pack down very tiny, but they absorb four times their weight in water. They are fast drying. They're also somehow sand free. They collect zero sand. They're also 100% recycled. Actually, all of Slow Tide's polyester products are made from 100% recycled post-consumer waste, primarily plastic bottles. And these are just two of their items in addition to a deep catalog of blankets and towels, both for the home and the beach. But the waterproof changing ponchos make a great gift for Christmas for any surfer. And the quick dry towels actually pack down neatly enough to fit into a stocking as a stuffer. So slowtide.co, promo code SURFPODCAST, all one word, save 20% off your order. Slowtide.co, promo code SURFPODCAST. Enjoy. And Real Water Sports is with us today as well. They just landed 30 brand new Rossins in their inventory, all built in Hawaii. So get them while they last, or if they actually do last a couple of weeks, on Cyber Monday, November 29th, they are offering $100 off all surfboard purchases. Their prices are already very competitive, so the 100 bucks off will make it a bargain. They have 1,500 boards in inventory. They ship all over the world for one low flat fee, and the board is guaranteed to arrive blemish-free. So go to realwatersports.com to peruse their inventory, fantasize, maybe map out your cyber surfboard Monday purchase, or just pull priority and grab a hand-built new Rawson today realwatersports.com. Enjoy. Thad Zilkowski is the author of the recent book, The Drop, How the Most Addictive Sport Can Help Us Understand Addiction and Recovery. He's also an avid surfer with an English literature PhD from Yale University. He taught at Yale and NYU, directed the writing program at the Pratt Institute, and through most of this, he has managed some level of addiction, recovery, relapse, and recovery again something that many people struggle with, but some people never really feel comfortable addressing personally or especially discussing publicly. And very few people actually have the gift of being able to articulate the process through writing. Not only does Thad have that gift, but he's generous with his candor, and he's also drawn some pretty compelling analogies to surfing. 
house surfing activates a lot of addictions physiology, but also how it serves as a remarkable therapy to quell trauma and is just a great replacement behavior for anyone trying to redirect a behavior. And the subject of substance misuse, drugs and alcohol specifically, are embedded into the surfer stereotype. Sometimes I think unfairly, but when I actually recount the history of surf culture influencers and even world title winners who have succumbed to addiction, it really does seem like a justifiable stereotype. And beyond that, it's just relatable. Seeking quick relief from stress or a traumatic incident is a universal human trait. So whether it be drugs, alcohol, food, caffeine, or any other indulgence, I think that we've all analyzed where our own behavior lies on that spectrum. Am I drinking too much? Is it affecting the relationships in my life? So Thad and I discuss that spectrum and also when he identified when his own personal usage was in fact addiction and not just usage. We also discuss what early life events might set up addictive behavior, how the medical community struggles to define addiction. And my goal through all of this is just kind of to erode the stigma or the shame associated with the topic of addiction. So there's plenty of surf history in his book, The Drop, and also in this conversation, but hopefully it also allows a more robust understanding of what maybe your friends or family might be managing in their lives, and also the motivations for why you put what you put in your body. So my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Thad Zilkowski. I first just want to say I'm so enamored by your writing. Your writing is really good. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I feel like I tapped into a sub couple of subject matter, you know, surfing and addiction that would get me, got me really excited as a writer. And it was, and also it was kind of dark material, which is attractive for a lot of writers. I'm one of those writers who like to write about dark stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I, there were moments where I was like, gosh, I'll never have another, con, you know, kind of um, confluence of subject matter that gets me this excited. So that was that was cool. I was going to read the book because of the subject matter, no matter what. I wasn't prepared for how good the writing was. Oh, and it made it, it made it just a breeze to read and really enjoyable to read, actually. I appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. Tell me about your professional or about your educational and professional background, if you don't mind. Yeah. So I, you know, I was this hardcore surfer. I, I, I um, barely, I was a terrible student. They wanted to put me in vocational school out of junior high. And I was just staring out the window and I always was a reader. But um, when I decided to go to college, I, I kind of got serious toward the end of high school. My father was an academic. My parents were divorced. And... <clears throat> His, everyone in his family is an academic. They're all literature professors. So I kind of knew and I had this sense of my, you know, um, affinities for literature 
through him. I knew that that was, there was something I had that made me so interested in reading. So I went to college where he taught college in, in DC, in Washington, DC. He taught at GW, George Washington University and he was a classics professor and it was hard for me to get in. But I got in and I got, I was very happy in college. I, I, I um, you know, I got more and more serious. And then when I finished, I was pretty burned out and I took a few years off. And then I went back to graduate school. I went to graduate school at Yale uh, just to get out of the job market, just to get out of the job force. I just hated working. I hated being a waiter. I hated being a poor poet in the city. But I quit surfing when I was, you know, about 19, 20. And, and then, I, during graduate school, I got this alcohol and cocaine addiction that didn't really derail my academics, but it kind of slowly derailed my life. And then in the middle of my thirties, when I had just gotten a job teaching at an art school in New York city, I wrote a little article about surf films, like five summer stories, which had been a really big film for me. And, and then I just started surfing again. And that was what made me, that was what kind of pulled me out of the drug and alcohol addiction. And ever since the mid nineties, I've been surfing in and around New York and um, traveling when I can and writing about surfing. Let me close out my email. Sure. Has a little ding. So, you know, at one level, I'm like this weird, like, I feel like I went to college for as long as most people go to primary and secondary school. I was like a really, I was in a graduate school for eight years, <laughs> you know, yeah. in New Haven. It was crazy. And I was in undergrad for five years. But as a student before that, I had been very lackluster and a typical surf student, you know, like more interested in surfing and more of a jock really than a, a student. So I had this kind of clean divisions in my life, like where I went from being a hardcore surfer to being a student in the city to being a surfer again, but in the city. Do you have any education uh, related to addiction? Formal education, I should say? No, nothing. No, no, all of everything that I know about addiction in terms of brain science and, and whatnot, I learned in order to write this book, you know, my editor said, that's what I want. I, I like I had, I knew I had a memoir. I was going to, I knew I was going to kind of come out as an addict in this book. And that was kind of scary and exciting. And I knew I had a lot to say about surfing and surf history, but um, I didn't know anything about brain science and she pushed me to be a, to, to do some research on that. And I did it really reluctantly. I didn't like, I thought it was gonna be like, you know, a book report, but I got quite, I, there, I was pretty blown away by a couple of things I discovered. And yet, so in short, I, I knew nothing about addiction, formally speaking, before I um, wrote this book. Because, um, of your education background and maybe because you've worked in academics as well, I thought maybe you had studied it because you write about it in a way that um, seems like you have. But I should say, I guess, with that in mind, that we are going to be talking a lot about addiction and neither of us are giving advice. Anything that we talk about in this for the listener is not advice. It's just personal anecdote and experience, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm no authority on addiction. I, I have a kind of pet theory about how people might break an addiction, but I don't, 
I don't, uh, yeah. I, the thing about it is that people, no one knows. Uh, you know, there are people who are authoritative about the brain or about their ideas of how to go through rehab, but it's obvious through the recidivism rates that there's not actual knowledge about addiction. Right. You know, you did, so, a, you did a good job explaining that uh, through the book a couple of different times, I thought. Um, so I'm curious, you, you write with such clarity about your childhood trauma, um, about the cause and effect maybe of those events from your childhood and how they've kind of played out in your life. Can I ask what work you've done, um, to see things so clearly? Um, I, I don't know, nothing, nothing at the level of like something like a therapeutic work. I think I've just, um, lived a long time and kind of come to terms with it and it's gotten clearer and I can write about it. Um, I don't know. That's a, that's, that's a tricky question. I'm not sure why I do you, I do you agree I'm, with my assessment that you have a real clarity and an ability to kind of see what the effects were in your, or what the causes were in your childhood and how they affected your behavior later? Well, I think, you know, I, <laughs> I'm able, like, if I, if I become convinced of some fundamental sort of connection between two things, I, I, I can be persuasive because I feel like what I've done in most of my life is devote myself to writing in a way that feels authoritative. So, like, I can kind of perform authoritative, uh, you know, like a conviction in a way okay. that maybe that's kind of what you're getting at. I'm not sure I feel very... Um, confident about saying I know I can perform an insight or I can perform a knowledge and uh, and I'm glad it feels authoritative and I and I fundamentally feel settled about my life in the in the sense I'm 61 you know and um yeah I I I I feel like it's it's kind of a settled thing but on the other hand I'm also respond I'm also writing out of a tradition of memoir writing or of self-reflection that is informed by that so it's mm -hmm. partly it's partly like my my understanding of myself is very much filtered through a literary tradition when i write about it and so like it's partly that um preference for clarity over say you know um creating a sense of difficulty. Like I, I feel like my literary values have gotten simpler and clearer. Like I, I, I want to be understood. <laughs> Whereas a lot of my writing when I was in my twenties and thirties was interested in a hermeneutic, a very hermetic kind of sealed off and difficult writing. And, you know, you see this in surf culture too. You see surf writing that wants to be clear and, and like um, discursive and, and then there's other surf writing that's more performative and flashier and more about mystery. Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of people that um, never come to terms with some of the things that happened in their youth. So I'll just kind of gloss over a few things that you go into depth with the uh, to in the book, but people, it's worth people hearing just to hear how traumatic some of your upbringing was. In addition to divorce, there were two significant suicides, your stepfather, your brother, um, your stepfather, it seemed like there was a bit of abuse going on. But when you talk about him, 
you don't talk about it through the term or through the lens of a victim. There's even, a, I'll, I'll read you a line because I thought that this was kind of, this illustrated to me a, there was an accepting of Pat for who he was rather mm-hmm. than you constantly being re-traumatized by the role that he played in your life. It says, um, after Pat, among Matt's or Pat's kind of many blessings in his life, it said it was not enough or did not address or mend some obscure psychic fracture or silence the fatal judgment being rendered by an inner voice, the voice of his father. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I think I think the thing that, that I realized writing this book that was slightly, you know, a new feeling of understanding about him was that he was in a way kind of like a white knuckle alcoholic during the time I was a child in his, you know, family. And, you know, he was, he had, he had met my mother when he was really drinking heavily and he had this smashed up car. And she said, you know, if you want to be with me, you've got to quit drinking. And he did it, but he didn't go through rehab. He just cold, probably just quit cold Turkey. And um, he didn't really drink when I was with him, but he had the tenor of someone who was suffering a lot. And I think he was not finding relief from his suffering. And there was always an element of impersonality to it. Like I knew he wasn't responding to me. I knew he was suffering. I I intuited that as a child, as a boy, but you know, there was a sense of tragedy about it. You know, like it Mm -hmm. couldn't be helped. It couldn't be solved. It couldn't be fixed. And so when he killed himself, there was something like almost unsurprising about it but at the same time he had a very indestructible nature he was very masculine and kind of tough and so it shocked everyone too because here this very you know kind of um man's man had taken his own life so yeah, that that was a big that was a, that was a real trauma in my uh, youth, and then later my brother's suicide was another trauma when I was thirty. I had also felt like that was a long time in coming, and in a way, much more inevitable because he was he was also mentally ill. He had bipolarism, and he was also a drug addict. So I was kind of in a way surrounded by these drug addicts and these very big personalities who had very kind of violent swings mood swings and violent temperaments in a way and i became as a result kind of a watchful person you know what i mean in a way yeah. that a lot of writers become our observers you know and they're kind of for one way or another they're kind of pushed back onto themselves they're watching the world and i was in that way like i came in the, out of that matrix tell me about when you kind of made the connection between um, the addictive qualities of surfing and the life of an addict and the general concept for the book? Yeah, you know, in a way it had always been there because in surf culture, especially in the seventies, drugs were everywhere. And like my my hero, Kelly Slater's first sponsor was Dick Catree and he was my sponsor too. And I was like on his, what I guess you would call it a team. And I was patching dings in his factory. And he was busted two weeks after I started the job for um, selling pot to an undercover agent. And he was gone, he was in jail. And that was like an early experience. And now not, I'm not saying that Katree himself was an addict, but drugs were everywhere. And drug yeah. culture was very pervasive at the time. 
and um, it still is in surfing, you know, in a lot of ways. But the the but even before that, I was I was really struck by how powerful a force surfing was, just in the way that it uh, focused everyone who became a surfer. It was like this it was like this conversion experience to a religion, like a fundamentalism, and surfers would blow off swim practice when the waves got good they would they would, they would do they would cut school there was a lot of there was a, it was just always very dramatic to me how emotional and powerful the hold on surfing was on all surfers including myself right so i knew that that and when you think about it it's a very strange thing right i mean it's kind of like a what this book allowed me to do is kind of feel something that had become second nature to, to me and, and second nature to most surfers, even though surfers talk about surfing as an addiction and it's kind of this rueful thing that everyone acknowledges and is kind of resigned to, there's something really bizarre about the energy pattern of it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, on the one level, it's just a it's so selfish and, and, you know, almost masturbatory and another level, like the greatest thing I can imagine giving my children or some other adult is to turn them on to surfing. So I take people out surfing and I teach them to surf. And I'm like, this is like the best thing I've got to give, right? <laughs> you know, mm. It's not French. It's not Latin. It's not the literary tradition of all the other things that I've invested my time in surfing is this kind of gift. And I just want other people to feel like, they, they can see the magic of this. So at one level, you know, there's this communal aspect of surfing and, and you want to share it with people. Another level, when this is the purely addictive part, there's this just this sense of like, I got to get mine. I, 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 I got to go surfing. I, I, I've got to go like, I'm going to blow off whatever obligations I have today and I'm going to go. And I don't care if anyone comes with me. And in fact, you know, in a larger way, the thing that I always think of is this guy who is the best local in my area, whose dad was a stockbroker, and he became a waiter. And like he gave up, he forfeited all of his socioeconomic privileges that were being handed to him. And he became a surfer and he gave it all away. And if that, what is that? If that's not, that looks like a monastic move. It looks like a but it also is an, it looks like an addiction thing too. You know, you can imagine a gambler saying like, yeah, my dad was a stockbroker, but I'm here at the, I'm here at the horse races because I can't fucking think of anything else <laughs> except gambling. And that's yeah. kind of like, what's the difference between surfing and, and a gambling addiction in that way, you know? And that, that was one of the things actually that I was persuaded by in terms of the brain science, which we can get to, it's just this, concept of intermittent reinforcement but yeah so uh, I, I it's hard for me to talk about the genesis of the concept of the book because it's in a way always been there and then there was also the always early on a sense of like gosh Ricky Rasmussen was shot dead buying buying drugs in Harlem you know when I was still paying attention to surfing and I know Jeff Hackman you hear these stories and you're just like god these it's everywhere you know, yeah. and uh, yeah, and then it, even in its purest sense, even for the really abstemious straight edge surfers, they're addicted, they're addicts, <laughs> you know. Well, that so there's you touched on it 
in, in that um, there's two roles that surfing plays in this book for me. Some of them, some of it, one of the roles is addiction. It goes hand in hand with, you know, flea in Santa Cruz is fully absorbed in his addiction and surfing. He's treating surfing the same way he's treating meth. It's serving the same purpose in his life. But there's another role that you reference that surfing plays, which is therapy, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's actually what's used to, or the replacement behavior for surfing. And so that was kind of interesting that it can do both those roles at different times in, in your life. Um, and so I'm curious how it ends up evolving from one thing into the next, or does it have nothing to do with surfing? And there's other factors in your life that allow surfing to play whatever role, you know, it needs to. Well, I think, you know, it's like, ultimately I concluded that addictions follow along a spectrum and surfing is like somewhere in the middle and you have meth and heroin and oxy on one end of the spectrum. And it's just 99.9% destructive. After the first little honeymoon experience you have on a hard drug, it's just downhill, right? And and, and there's diminishing returns. Surfing, you know, you see, there are certain kinds of surfers who really do need a bigger thrill all the time. Like like Garrett McNamara, you see that, and you watch the 100, foot wave and you see also he's handling his trauma of his childhood and his abandonment by his mother same with um liam they're both these traumatized people but their trauma is exactly is also what makes them so intense and devoted to surfing to the point where they become great right their greatness depends on the need they have, the, the, the intensity of the need for relief through something like surfing, which is utterly immersive. The idea that Garrett or Liam might have flamed out on meth and been left on the side of the road in the North Shore is totally imaginable, right? It's so easy to imagine both those guys just dying of an overdose but they don't. And it could be that Garrett is killed by a, a huge wave on his way to trying to surf, you know, 100 foot wave at age 59 or whatever. He may right. drown. He may drown of it in the end. But you see also with Garrett in that picture that he's bringing in all these people to his joy. His obsession is reanimating this town of Nazareth. And he's teaching all these people and they're following him like a general into this kind of engagement with the ocean. So surfing, even though there's this really obvious um, and and almost scary intensity of of addiction, pure and simple to it, it's also because and because it's it's not at the hard drug end of the spectrum. It's a life fundamentally a life affirmative activity. It also brings in other people. It doesn't exclude relationships. Addiction, hardcore addiction, absolutely leaves you alone. You know, you are totally. absolutely on your own really quickly, and you're hiding your you're hiding your drug use because it's shameful, and you're off on you know you're off on your own, and you will wind up alone and dead in the end if it keeps going. Surfing has that isolating capacity. And you see this in certain monastic kinds of surfers, but you see also that it has the capacity to be life affirmative and bringing in a big family and reanimating the town and the lighthouse and the 
this discovering this spot and it's this whole economy it's this whole beautiful community right that's what places surfing in the middle of addictions and then over to the to the left of surfing so to speak are things like i don't know for me working out right i need my serotonin rush i need to be physically fit or i'm not going to make it i'm going to get depressed right now my workout addiction is not enough for me to hold me to get me out of bed in the morning i think i need more i need something closer to the middle closer to a drug and that's where surfing works pretty well right i i can handle it i can manage it but it's still that it's got that addictive force the addictive force is like the wild kind of power of it right yeah you know that can can it override your life or not? And, but it's there, it's wild. You know, you feel the, you know, it makes you do things that you wouldn't normally do that are risk. Um, like you can, you'll crack your head open on a reef or you'll like, I do things like I leave the car running and I'm trying, I'm looking at waves and the car's running and the door is half open and I'm going down the street about to clip somebody because I'm looking out the wave and I, you know, I'm, I'm a dad. I'm like 60 years old, but I feel like I'm 14. Yeah. And that's surfing. Right. And only, and in a way it's like the ad only a surfer really knows that. And you have to have had that conversion experience to surfing to know what I'm talking about. But I know that I'll probably go to my grave uh, with that kind of sense of being an eternal Grom every all like you, I know you'll know what I mean when I say, when you say like, Taj Bros, an eternal Grom, right? Yeah. We love that about him. That's the that's his highest quality, is his childlike quality and his enthusiasm. We love that about surfers, right? Yeah. And it's infectious. Yeah, totally. In, and it comes in the, out in the surfing. For sure. Yeah. Uh, in the chapter Brain Bathymetry, mm-hmm. you talk about that. You kind of delineate those two things. I guess you just made them three now, but the two... Uh, drug addiction versus behavioral addictions. Mm-hmm. Is there a brain science that defines those as separately or do they operate separately other than in practicality, like you just explained? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, you know, technically the signature, the neurochemical signature on the brain of a sex of like a porn addiction or a gambling addiction is is the same as a hard, hard drug addiction. You know, it does the same thing to the prefrontal cortex. It breaks the conversation between the executive aspect of the brain and the more limbic or motive or the kind of like fight or flight side, the really primitive urge driven side of the brain, right? So when you look at the brain of an addict who is not doing drugs, but is doing porn or doing gambling, that signature, this, what, it, what, the, what that activity does to the brain is similar, but the, but the catalyst in, a, in the case of hard drugs is so powerful and that that's the difference. And I'm sure that there's, you know, the onset of like a drug addiction when you're mainlining heroin is going to be sharper, more acute than say the onset of an addiction when you're, when you're doing lots, watching porn endlessly or gambling your savings away or, or even like, um, 
you know, people can become addicted. Anything that has dopamine in it can seem can, apparently can be like dysregulated. So this okay. is the problem with the, this is the, tr in a way, the tragedy of being in a body is that anything that gives you pleasure, food, sex, uh, can become, can capsize into kind of an addictive dysregulation, right? Yeah. The brain doesn't care whether it's going to fuck your life up. The brain will start to go there because of its bioevolutionary tendencies and its synaptic. It's just following this pleasure in a way, right? Yeah. And that's, that's how people can um, die alone in an alleyway with a needle in their arm. If, if the brain were watching out for us, that wouldn't be possible. Right. But, but in a normal situation, the brain is watching out for us. Like a lot, two of the, like one basic theory of the brain, the reason it's so hard to keep getting high on a drug is because there's something called an opponent theory, uh, opponent process. So if I start to get, as soon as I, you know, do a line of cocaine, I'm going to need a little more the next time, a little more the next time. My brain, my entire nervous system is trying to prevent me from getting high. Why? Because it's important for my survival as an entity that my brain be at a default setting of clarity. I have to be ready to find food, have sex, or you know, deal with danger, uh, survival. If I'm high, and that means even grieving, even falling in love, that's a problem for my survival capacities. So the brain is always trying to clear the deck and bring me back to a default setting of neutral readiness. Can I notice what I need to notice and deal with it properly so that I can survive? That's why, that's one theory of why it's so bloody hard to keep getting high at the level you first got high at. The, the entire yeah. nervous system is preventing that from happening, from you getting that same rush over and over. You're, you're never gonna, and, and yet <laughs> the brain can also get dysregulated and it's not only drugs, it's also behavior. And that's what's so, um, perplexing about it and also tragic about the human you know predicament of having of being in a body is that the body can start to lead you astray the body can change in a way that's completely destructive yeah the um not being able to get as high as you could the first time because your entire nervous system is working against you isn't doesn't apply to the surfing addiction. Right. Yeah. I mean, in a way you do see certain surfers where you hear Garrett McNamara on the hundred foot wave say, I surf for the rush. I needed a bigger wave. So there are surfers who you to talk about surfing and the kind of escalation of the rush as if it's drug dosages, right? For sure. Most surfers don't relate to surfing in that way. Most surfers are happy to get their four to five foot wave and period. Good. I'm good. I'll have that over and over for the rest of my life. That's great. I'm just want to be clean and hollow or whatever. Right. But surfing can become a kind of, because it's got that dopamine aspect, it can sort of become 
problematic in the sense that like you're organizing the rest of your life around it such that you don't you know take care of yourself properly like you're you're broke you're marginal you're you're unable to travel you, you know, there are a lot of ways in which committing yourself to surfing creates a narrowness a parochializes people right and they they cease learning about anything else there is a, there's a narrowing a force that surfing has in a broader way that is like an addiction there's there's another element too that you touch on in the book which is nobody's great at it the first time so it's like you might have a certain uh spike of dopamine from that first experience that first wave but you want to get better. And so the, the actual spike that you're chasing is kind of increasing or it's going up or it's just mm-hmm. shifting and it's a different target that you're trying to hit. So there's that, there's that as well. It's not the exact same experience over and over and over. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that's a kind of subtle uh, observation about surfing that makes you realize that it's in the middle of a spectrum of addiction. Yeah, It's not like, yeah. it's not pure and simple like doing a hit of crack. You know, it's just not. And yet surfers, surfers love to talk about surfing in the fatalistic way of, of I did it and boy, I was hooked and that's it. And that's the life. And that's my life story. I went surfing one time and everything was different. Everything was over my whole life. I was not going to go to college. I was not going to become a billionaire tech guy. I was going to be a surfer and that's okay. I accept that because surfing is so great a thing that it's, it was the trade-off was, was worth it or that's totally. the narrative, right? Totally. Um, I'm wondering in your research, are there any precursors uh, for addiction or indicators for addiction in youth? Because you talk a lot about child, your childhood trauma and then almost every, um, professional surf example that you gave throughout the book, whether it was Andy Irons or Jeff Hackman, you start off by talking about their early childhood traumas. So are there precursors or indicators for addiction? Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a scale that addiction experts use researchers called adverse childhood experiences. So like, you know, like physical abuse, psychic abuse, um, a parent who's a drug addict, th- those would be three or four things that would go, you know, you've got four adverse childhood experiences. And the more you have of those, the greater the likelihood that you're going to be an addict yourself, straight up. And that's like, common. it's almost common sense, right? It is, yeah. And And yet there are people who become addicted who don't, have any dramatic childhood, you know, so it may be, it's it's complicated in that way, but a lot of times addicts have these adverse childhood experiences, which the addiction is giving them a relief from. It's kind of like, yeah, so they're, they're finding relief from suffering and the addiction, not that they're getting high. And this is what I think it was eye-opening to me conceptually was, Addicts are not looking to get high. They're looking for relief. This is a Gabor Mate thing too. It's like, it's not so much like a hedonism. It's about relief from suffering. You'll see this with smokers. That makes sense to me. Because the yeah, hedonism. You'll see this with people. 
Yeah. The Go hedonism ahead. or the person who's doing it hedonistically isn't fueled by addiction. You can tell who that person is, you know, and it's like, they just, <laughs> they're a celebrity just soaking it up right now and, and doing tons of drugs and alcohol, but it's different. The motivations are entirely different. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, you can, you can kind of, there's a qualitative difference in the use of it. And there's a kind of serious, a grimness and a compulsiveness to addictive use that is, it's almost like categorically different. I'm not sure it really is. It may be on more of a spectrum. And it may be, you know, that we, if we talked long enough, we would say, oh, you know, the general human condition is one of suffering in, in a kind of low grade way. And everyone, even when they are using alcohol, say hedonistically, the, the, let's say you see a, a you know, two couples out to dinner and they're having two bottles of wine and they have three bottles of wine and they get drunk. And are those people, is there some real difference between them and addicts or, or is it just that the, those people don't have dysregulated brains, they don't have the childhood trauma, but the essential experiences of relief from the daily grind of human consciousness and responsibility and the burden of consciousness. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like it's I've, universal that everyone, everyone, all cultures have alcohol. All cultures have a fermented grain or some fine to get them high. A lot of those people are not going to become addicts in the same, in the kind of like right. the village wino, right? But they all want out, don't they? We yeah. all want release. We want relief. And that's why it's, you know, there's a confusion, it's confusing. That's why the use in, and misuse of drugs and alcohol is so kind of murky and confusing. It's because like at one level, dude, it's universal. I want, I'm sensitive. I want my release. I want to get, I want to, I want just like an hour or three of release from my normal thought patterns and my normal sense of consciousness don't don't tell me that's bad for me right that's not bad for me that's what everyone needs and i particularly need it because i'm a sensitive poet right and then at the other end of that it turns out that i acquire an addiction like i i one day i do cocaine in a certain time in my life in a certain mood and i've got a certain background and boom i become an addict and it was not actually sudden but the right circumstances came around eventually so that, yeah, 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 I've heard it. A lot of people were surprised. A lot of people were surprised to find out that I was an addict. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't read as an addict. I yeah. read as someone who's like, gosh, he's so self-disciplined. He works out. He does this or that. He he goes to college for a million years. That doesn't look like an addict, but it doesn't matter. You know, right. it can be. It can be. Yeah, I've heard it defined. Um in terms of consequence as well. Mm. It, like it can't be defined by volume because there's some people who come home and they have a six pack of beer and they get up to work every single day, never miss a day. Their wife is happy with them. Their kids are happy with them. And there's others who uh, the consequence is they lose their job, but they continue drinking. Their wife says she's gonna leave, but they continue drinking. And it may be less than a six pack. It may be three beers, you know? So the, the volume doesn't matter. It's strictly mm -hmm. about whether or not you choose to engage, not choose, but whether or not you continue to engage in the substance or behavior 
despite the consequence. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. And that's, that's often a way that addiction is defined is of, um, you know, use of something despite the negative consequences, despite it. Yeah. In the face of it. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop. I'm super excited to finally be able to share Whoop with you. I started working with them and using the Whoop strap almost a year ago. And when they first reached out, I had already seen John John Florence wearing one. Um, I think that he was just starting to really get into cycling at that point. So I'd see him wearing it on his bike. I'd see him wearing it in the water while he was surfing. And when I talked to the team at Whoop, they actually explained that although it is a wearable fitness tracker, it's actually designed around the concept of recovery. So yes, it tracks exertion, but helping understand how your body recovers actually allows you to get more out of your workouts. So we're finally launching this partnership because Whoop just released their all new Whoop 4.0 strap, and it is the most advanced fitness wearable on the market. You wear it on your wrist, it has biometric tracking that tracks skin temp, blood oxygen, and of course heart rate, and much, much more. It is smaller and smarter than previous versions. It's so sleek that it fits under your wetsuit sleeve. Of course, it's waterproof. So the strap itself doesn't actually have a screen. There's no buttons. There's no annoying notifications. It's just constantly collecting your body's data 24-7. And then it connects to the app, which is on your phone, and gives you invaluable insights into the very big picture of your overall health. These vitals are super easy to share with your physician, your coach, your trainer, your PT, whomever. Think of it as a personalized digital fitness and health coach. Our promo code is the word SURF, where you'll save 15% on your membership, and you'll also get that WHOOP 4.0 strap completely free. WHOOP.com, W-H-O-O-P, WHOOP.com. And then use our promo code to both support us and then, of course, save 15% on your membership. The code is the word SURF on whoop.com, promo code SURF. Thank you and enjoy. Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. 
and you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I mean, you referenced earlier in this conversation about how prolific drugs are in the surf world. And to be honest, I know that's a known thing, but I kind of forget about it regularly. And then as I'm going through the chapter after chapter of the book, it's like, oh yeah, of course, Andy Irons. Oh, of course, Hackman. Okay, Rasmussen. Okay, the Santa Cruz scene. Okay, the it's just like, okay, Bunker. Yeah, I, I remember Bunker now. And Buttons, Coolio Kalani. Oh yeah, he was on Dog the Bounty Hunter. I remember Buttons. It was just like in endless dozens and dozens and not just pro surfers, Tom Carroll, champion, you know, champion mm-hmm. worlds, yeah. uh, the best surfers in the world who are really um, not only have struggled with addiction, but have died from their addiction in various ways. Um, you tell some really scary, dark, ugly stories about these people that really go in depth. Did you get permission from the families? Who did you speak to to get these stories? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because I was typically in a, in a writerly way kind of forgot how dark and sensitive this material is. Like, for, I was like, well, hey, you know, I'm talking about it openly, finally. I guess that everyone else will be willing to. But some people, you know, I, I, there's some people I didn't even pr- approach because I was just like, I just didn't have the strength, you know, like to go talk to so-and-so, the big wave writer. No one knows he's an addict, but it's on the street. They'll tell you, you know, he, yeah, yeah he, he is. And you can go, but I, I, I basically worked with the public record. You know, okay. I, I didn't need to go. And certain people who were not out as addicts went on the record with me and then changed their mind. They're like, you know what? I don't want to be, I just don't want to do this. And I was like, fine, that's fine. You don't need to do that. So like, you know, ultimately I was really like someone like Lynn Boyer had, had was out in print as an addict. That's why I knew she was, you know, I'm a, I read and I, I, I read a lot of surf, surf history, a lot of surf media and like, okay. Yeah. And there are a lot of others who were not particularly well known. I didn't even who were out, but I didn't even bother telling their story because there's just, there's a, there's an embarrassment of riches of surf drug stories. You know what I mean? You can only, you can, you tell certain ones as a writer that stand for others, but it's really, as you were suggesting is pervasive. And, and yeah, you know, like, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one profile that I was like a little, like I felt a little hesitant about was the Michael Thompson because he had never really said, uh, he had never done what a lot of people do like Hackman. And in fact, that was why he interested me. He was someone who kind of maintained an outward uh, togetherness. Meanwhile, his life was kind of slowly falling apart. He was getting busted for big amounts. He was, he was clearly addicted and, and, and yet he didn't really have a big flame out. He didn't have a come to Jesus moment. And that really, and I was, it was interested in him in that way. Like he somehow, he, he didn't die of it. He died rather young, but he didn't die of drugs. And I was like, uh-huh, this is interesting. But 
and so he stood for a song, he stood for a lot of other surfers who kind of keep it together, right? They're they have a drug problem, but it's not well known and it's handled in the in private and and part of their part of the machismo and bravado of surfing gets played into the denial about it too, in the case of someone yeah. like Thompson. And so I don't know, it was really interesting to me. Well, it, it, it calls into question the definition of addiction again, because you can argue, um, you could argue both sides of that, that it either drastically affected his life or that the successes in his life were related to exactly why he was doing the drugs in the first place, you know, and he never said that it was an addiction. He said it was everybody else around him going, Michael's the one who has the problem. And he's going, they're all doing drugs too. They're just pointing the finger at me because I'm more open about it. You know, so you can make an argument that he wasn't addicted because there wasn't that adverse consequence that we were talking about earlier. Well, yeah, except that he was popped for having, he had like a lot of, he had ounces of cocaine. He seemed to clearly be dealing it. And if you, if the cops are coming into your house because you, you failed a probation thing, or they're coming in to check and you're going, you're on the verge of going to jail. And the only reason you're not going to jail is because you've got a lot of money in the bank and you can hire a lawyer. That's adverse consequences. And he, I think that his financial success insulated him from some of that adverse consequences in the way that that's well, in the way that often does. It's kind of like Hackman going to the best rehab on the planet because he was he was at a, a successful, you know, surf surfwear brand that had gone, you know, multinational. He was with Quicksilver and the Quicksilver people said, no, we're not going to kick this guy to the curb. Let's send him to the rehab facility that Elton John went to. Right. And Michael Thompson was in that category. He was a successful businessman. But someone like Flea, he does a backflip off a cliff, you know, and lands and, and nearly dies. And he goes to he goes to rehab, but it, you know, may well, it, you know, like that was that was so close to not taking for him. Right. So there's about, a range about profiles and getting people's sign off on them. Um, what about Benji Weatherly's profile? Because I feel like some of that information was new to me. I had not read a lot of that before. He was, he was one of the few I interviewed who was really open about it and was really generous with his time. And he also, you know, he was just a good kind of native informant, you know, like he told me about his life very openly. And um, I interviewed him and he gave me clearance, you know. Okay. But I knew he was out about it because of the um, momentum generation. That's the first I had really heard about it. Um, certainly the first I had heard him speak publicly about it, but he didn't go nearly from what I remember in the documentary, he didn't go into as near into as much depth as you did. Right. Right. Um, the Rick Rasmussen's uh, Rasmussen stuff is so gnarly. Yeah. That was fresh to me as well. Like I had an awareness of that story but reading through it was all fresh to me and just mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. There was a really good New York Magazine article written about it at the time it happened by a guy named Michael Daly. And um, 
I leaned on that article hard. I, I talked to Michael Daly. What interested me about Rasmussen was this rumor that he might be alive, like he was maybe in witness protection. And so that was kind of what magnetized that story for me a bit. And Michael Daly, this kind of hard-nosed journalist, is like, nah, I don't think so. I think he's really dead. <laughs> but, um, you know, I also found it interesting that he, it was so much more, it was so much more dark. It was so much darker in a way, his actual story than what I imagined when I was a kid, when I first heard that how he died, I thought it was just like a drug by gone bad, but he was actually informing for the FBI and, um, right. you know, to avoid going to jail himself and on the verge of just getting probation. And, and yet some other dealer was pressuring him to move some big amount the night he got killed in New York. And it was just so dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why, um, why do you think there's such um, a tremendous amount of drug usage in surfing? I think fundamentally it comes out of the, the kind of beach boy um, hedonism of the party of the, of the, you know, beach blanket bingo, you know, just like down, you're at the beach, the beach is a, a, what I, you know, I get into this concept of liminality and the beach is a liminal space. It's kind of like a, like it's neither here nor there. It's not on the shore. It's not out to sea. And you're in this kind of zone of, of ambiguity and freedom. And it just it permits for a lot of flight. And there's something structural about surfing and surf culture that makes it, you know, just have a really strong connection to intoxicants. You know, surfing itself is an intoxicant. You know, you come in and, you know, this is one of the things you get a lot with big wave surfers to be like, yeah, it wasn't so much, it was afterward, it was the calm down. Peter Mel talks about this. It was like, what do you do with all that adrenaline and kind of craving on the other end of a big session? Uh, you know, the, even the South African surfers were talking about this and, you know, coming in from the, the one or two days a year when Dungeons was breaking. And, um, you know, they, there was a sense of, 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 of danger, you know, like this is doing something to my nerve and my system that is, that is like putting me at risk of going to dangerous extremes on shore, you know, with alcohol, with cocaine, with meth, whatever, you know, just yeah. the sort of sense of like, okay, now I'm, I've achieved this buzz. I have this, I have this amazing afterglow, but what do I do with it now? What do I, I want to, I want to keep it going. That's what I want. That's my instinctive thing is just to keep this going. And I remember hearing an interview with um, a rocker and he would talk about how difficult it, it was for him to, to play like this stadium and come and then have dinner with people. Just like, how do you fucking have dinner with people yeah. and talk like a normal human being when you've been Jesus Christ superstar for three hours? You know, you are like a God and everyone's talking to you like you're a human. And I think that there's a similar sort of thing with, with especially with big wave surfers. Uh, they don't know what to do with themselves. Like what, who are they? What are they now? You know? Yeah. I think that's totally it. And for, for the guy, the Andy Irons of the world or Tom Carroll or whoever, and certainly Michael Thompson, there's also just the access, you know, once you're at that rock star level, 
every vice is available. And so if you have that predisposition towards um, intense experiences, then it's, it's right there and it's available. And why wouldn't you do it? Nobody's telling you no. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. Especially with, I think, surfer like Andy Irons, a lot of these guys have come up and they're not actually affluent. They come from sort of scrappy surf families, maybe. I mean, Tom Carroll came from a middle-class family, but like Andy Irons, his dad was like a carpenter, you know, divorce, the kind of just hand-to-mouth life, right? And then he, they come into money that is just like beyond. I mean, it's just like everything's available suddenly. And, and they have all that, that, that kind of those rich surf neurochemists chemicals and they also have the sense of like being um Im, you know basically immortalized by the surf industry yeah and and certainly no one is telling them no it's until it's too late immortalized by the surf industry but also by conquering mother nature to a certain degree yeah. you know where you just feel feel immortal um you wonder how it could end any other way actually <laughs> like imagine the you would have to have such an incredible upbringing to fend off all of those advances yeah yeah and such a strong moral constitution just be like no thanks i'm gonna go to bed at eight o'clock tonight which by the way i feel is what carissa moore does and maybe Mm -hmm. chloe and dino you know they've just been raised that well with the goal on being winning world titles to where they know that isn't beneficial to winning a world title yeah, I mean, you you tell it you 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 you're you're better positioned to talk about this than I am. I mean, like the new professionalism in surf in pro surfing, where you have this cult of the athlete, cult of the you know of the um, manager and the trainer and all of that. I mean, do you feel that the world of professional surfing is is quite different from Andy Irons's day or not? Very different. Uh huh. Right. Very different. I think um, the brands themselves were responsible for a lot of the those poor decisions and excess, and they let their athletes on on too long of a leash, and those that was, became liabilities for the brands. And so I think, yeah, everybody's tightened those leashes, and. Um, they see the benefit of cross training and the benefit of diet and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, guys, like I think Mick Fanning was kind of the first that I think of in that respect, but certainly Idolo is in that doing that now and Kaloe Andino, Kanoa Igarashi, they're all cut from that exact same cloth where they want to, there's millions of dollars on the line. They want to protect the millions of dollars and that's far more important to them than getting high. Right, right, right. And, mm-hmm. and, and yet there are probably a lot of guys who are falling off tour who are getting high and we don't hear Possibly. about, yet. you know what I mean? And like, in other words, this, the, the pool of talent with professional surfing, a lot of the guys who are the best are the best because they're dealing with something in their life. And they're, they, they're no different than say Butch Van Ardstalen or anyone from any other era. They're, they're, they have that intensity because they're like fundamentally like flea, but the culture is different and the money is bigger. Um, sort of 
understanding of what you need to do in order to be the absolute best to have any chance of beating um you know what's his name the top brazilian like right now gabriel i mean how are you going to be gabriel unless you're absolutely at the top of your game and you went to bed at eight o'clock you know there's no right. way yeah exactly um i hate to even say this but there's a homogeneity amongst the pro surfers now that is not as interesting <laughs> yeah yeah i mean matt archibald chris ward chris davidson those guys were just more interesting you know they yeah. had personality and I, and I don't think the drugs are the reason for their personality but the having all the management and handlers around the athlete is the is response and those guys are keeping out the drugs but they're also creating these you know homogeneous athletes yeah no that's a very i mean it's hard not to see that right i mean i i don't want there's something there's part of me that wants to resist that conclusion but it's so obvious in another way i mean it's like a kind of corporatization of the of the athlete that you see with olympic you know it's like the olympics it's like the blandness of that and it's hard to really say oh well the surfing itself is suffering but it may not be long. I mean, but you know, then you cut to someone like John John and you think, okay, here's this really sweet person who's, there's no sign of drug problem. He, yet he probably had a really weird childhood. And, um, but he just looks like he's handling it all beautifully. You and know, his surfing level. is interesting. And you know, there's, there's, well, there's personality I guess that's why infused. I thought of him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, there's no question, but that the surfing is really as interesting as anybody we named in the above category, like the Chris Ward generation. Right. Right. Yeah. So there is a way to have it both. Um, it, I would love for you to um, explain the wave pools as methadone analogy. Cause I thought that was fascinating and so accurate. Yeah, that's an interesting, although well, that gets me to the, the concept of intermittent reinforcement, which is like basically this idea that if something is given to you regularly and predictably, it's not as addictive as something that's irregular and intermittent. So a lot which of- Which is counterintuitive. Are, totally counterintuitive, right? But the reason, um, the reason that happens is because the brain, the theory of that is that the brain evolved as a prediction machine. So when we look at a pattern of something in the water, say a swirl of water, we're like in bioevolutionary terms, it's really important to us that we know, is that the wind? Is that a shark? Is that fish that I could eat, right? Those three things, like, is that just whatever? So you're, we're, it's very, it's important that we have, we figure that out. That's good. So if a pattern is irregular, if it's not giving up its, if it's not giving up its nature easily, what happens to us as brains? We focus harder on it. We're not less interested, we're more interested. And that's what makes irregularity of waves and in surfing, part of what makes surfing so addiction, addictive. It's because, you know, like, I don't know when the waves are gonna be good again. There are, you know, three or four days out maybe, but I really don't know. Not only that, but when I'm out surfing, I don't know when the next wave is coming. So my entire orientation towards surfing is one of vigilance. 
uh, and I'm watching a pattern that I cannot figure out, like my brain can't master. And this makes it more compelling to me than if, than if I went to Kelly's Wave at 9 a.m. every day and I ordered up my, you know, right-hand barrel and, uh, I, and I got it. Even though the right-hand barrel, maybe let's, let's, just, let's just say that it's as good as Snapper, right? It's as good as Honolulu Bay. The, the, pharma, the pharmacological potency of the Honolulu Bay wave is greater at Honolulu Bay than at Kelly's wave. Why? It's because I'm unable to predict the Honolulu wave in reality, in nature, in the way that I am. And the difference in prediction and non-prediction is what makes the, the hold of nature deeper and stronger for us than predictability. So the wave machine is like methadone in the sense that people go, the reason heroin, and, and it works mainly with heroin actually, it doesn't work with all drugs, but the reason that getting drugs regularly and heroin particularly at 9 a.m. is helps people get off it is because you're not going through withdrawals, but you're not getting high. The reason you're not getting high is not only because you're on methadone, because you're getting it regularly. <laughs> See, that's one of the, that's the, that was one of the concepts that really got me, you know, in this book where I was like, wow, that really explains a lot about surfing. So if I go to Kelly's wave, I'm not going to get as high, but I'm not going to be jonesing for, I'm not going to be suffering in the way that one suffers if this, the waves aren't good. So my joke in that chapter was to say, this was the way for all these people to kind of wean themselves off surfing or to get their kind of like slightly, you know, synthetic, weaker um, high, and it will stave off the, the um, withdrawal symptoms. <laughs> it's, it's so perfect. <laughs> it's a beautiful analogy and it sums up so much of what I've blathered on for hours about trying to uh, explain. You just distilled it perfectly. That's exactly what it is. Intermittent you know? reinforcement. Yeah. That's yeah. It. And yeah. And a step beyond everything that you just said is all of the preparation and hard work that goes into getting that unpredictable wave at Honolulu. Mm hmm. You know, versus just dialing it up at nine o'clock and showing up to do your part. That is a huge factor for me as well. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. All just the kind of variables and, and the life, the kind of organizing of it. And the yeah, I mean, I remember I, I've going surfed. I've surfed through decades of lesser breaks to finally make my way to Honolulu. I've navigated various crowds around the world. So I know how to navigate that crowd. And then when the var the variable actually comes, the intermittent variable comes, all of that, that preparation has put me in place for this makes the payout even more, you know? Exactly. Yeah. The gratification and the intensity of the reward when you get it in all the ways that you just described is so strong. I mean, it yeah. is like, it's so powerful. It's orgasmically powerful, right? I mean, it's just yeah. like, you know, you're, you're, you're in tears at the end of a wave. Uh, you're kind of hunched over and you're going through something that's hard to even describe to other surfers, you know, like it's very personal. It's very much a release. All this stuff's happening, right? It's very psychic. I've said it in the past um, about like Kelly, 
thought, and we all thought that we wanted to create the perfect wave. And it, after watching that thing now for five years and seeing too many surf contests in that pool, what we've realized is that we actually did not want the perfect wave. We want, we still want to find the perfect wave, but you know, we, it's the unpredictability that we really crave and finding it in the unpredictability. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely onto something. I mean, I think it's like the, it also connects us to our ancestral past. It's like all of the millennia that our ancestors hunted. I think of surfing as fundamentally a hunting experience, right? It's hunting. And these migratory beasts are coming into the cove only, you know, on certain times of the year. And you've got to really be on it or you're going to miss it. And you want to jump on their back and ride it. And it's this ecstatic tribal experience. All of that is profoundly connected to ancestral experience. Like it goes back millennia. Yeah. And that's what, that's what everyone's been doing in our, in our, you know, we have genetic, you know, we are the outcome of that. And we feel a resonance with the past that is, you know, very difficult to put into words. Right. Totally. Can you tell me, um, how you broke free of addiction yourself? Yeah, I had a very, um, you know, it was like slow. It's kind of like the way I, I got, in a way it was fast and it was slow, but like the way I, the way that people talk about getting addicted on a first hit of something is, I don't believe that. I think that there's a gradual build up to it. And my quitting was somewhat gradual too, but the way it happened was I fell, I got drunk and I fell in the shower and I woke up the next day, I'd forgotten. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I had this kind of like wound on my side, <clears throat> you know, like a scrape. And, uh, and it frightened me so much that I, I lay down on the bed and I just kind of like went inside myself and I realized I had to do this very, very difficult kind of surgery on myself, which I was to say I had to disassociate i had to separate almost like at a cellular or or organic level the side of me that it always believed he had the right to be intoxicated from the side of me that was going to survive you know and i i had to sort of say you have to renounce and give up this thing that you've come to feel is your second nature right now you've got to do it right now or else you're going to die. And I, I kind of did it. It was like psychic surgery. I just kind of sat up and a while later and I was just like, okay, it's over. That's how it happened for me. And was it cold Turkey? Yeah, completely. Uh, no 12 step program or anything. Nothing. Like that? No, nothing. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to a few AA meetings cause I was afraid that it might not take, but I didn't the media, I went to them because I was trying to not be too proud, but I, I never went back. I just went to a few and, uh, you know, I just don't feel like it works. I don't need it. It doesn't work for me to do meetings. And, um, you know, so many people fall into my category who get sober and you never hear about it and they don't go to rehab. They don't do 12 step. They just get, they just do it. You've got to, everyone has to do it on their own anyway, even if it looks like it's 12 step. It's always totally solitary. 
You know what I mean? It's always yeah. totally spiritual and you're alone and you've, you've painted yourself into a corner. That's, that's the experience, you know, and you've got to get, you've got to get out. It's very how, um, personal. How many years ago was that? Uh... This was when I was like in my early forties. So it was like almost 20 years ago. Okay. And had you made attempts previously to get Yeah, started? yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, totally. Got it. Not, not succeeded, not succeeded. Right. And then, so for whatever reason, people call it rock bottom or whatever, but for whatever reason, that slipping in the shower was the incident that everything mm -hmm. kind of snapped into focus. Um, since then, have you ever had, uh, what's, how, how tempted have you been to relapse? I had a real relapse, um, in 2015 and when I pulled out of it, I just pulled out of it. It was easy, but it was like, I had to have, I had to burn my life down a bit. Right. And since then it's been back to, it wasn't hard to quit that, but it was, it was in a way even more destructive than like what had the consequences of that relapse were really serious, you know, like it had a big impact on my life. And so, and since then it was just, it's just been pretty much the same consequence. So I had, it's not as if I had no relapse and I really, but on a daily basis, I don't feel tempted. I, what I noticed that I, whenever I fantasize about drugs or alcohol, it's when I'm under stress. Mm. And it's not looking even for that, that reprieve again that you talked about at the yeah, beginning. Yeah. 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 It's just that I'm just like, that's interesting. That's coming up for you. And then I realize, oh yeah, you're, you're feeling a lot of stress right now. And that's, 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 that's basically the, the, um, conclusion I have for whatever that's worth. I mean, I feel like, um, if I don't, for instance, I feel dependent on surfing for my sense of joy. And I, I really absolutely can't imagine life sober without surfing. <laughs> I, yeah, you talk about um, feeling a relapse inclined to use again when you're stressed. If you are away from surfing for an extended period of time, do you feel that same inclination to use? Yeah, I think I feel, well, I, I feel, I feel down and I feel kind of, I mean, the thing about surfing is I keep it alive in my imagination. So yeah. it's, it's kind of like an identity. It's like a tribal thing. So I like, I, I pay a lot of attention to surf media. I write about surfing. I think about it. I dream about it. It's my, it's the dominant metaphor for me of life, right? It's the, it's the form in which life has occurred for me. You know what I mean? It's like who it is to be alive to me is to be a surfer. And if I never surf again, if the world is, you know, like if the water, if, if global warming, if there are no more waves, if there's the water is polluted, if it's all plastic, I'll still be a surfer. You know what I mean? But I, I feel like to the extent that I can surf regularly or semi-regularly, it's really important for my sobriety. Like I just, I feel like that's important that I have that to get up out of bed for. Yeah. 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 Can you tell me about the various types of surf therapy and why uh, the the kind of level of their uh, uh, efficacy? Yeah, surf therapy was something that came about with one of the. I mean, for the the experience I've had with it is pretty. You know, much just with kids on spectrum for. Um, 
a walk on water, and with various people involved in helping uh, special needs kids learn to surf, and also with um, soldiers coming back from combat who have PTSD. So I've had two direct experiences, which I write about in the book, with wounded warriors from the military, from the Marines, and um, in, um, what's that base? Autism. Pardon? The, oh, no, no the I'm base, sorry. The military base down near, near Lowers. Um, oh, Pendleton. Yeah, Camp Pendleton. I had that experience, which I write about, and then I had this experience of um, working with on-spectrum kids. And the, 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 the interesting thing is that there's a, there's a kind of surfing as panacea, which in brain terms is basically like, it helps rewire the brain to surf in a good way. Like it, it for instance, with, kid, with people with PTSD, what PTSD is is kind of a looping trauma. So let's say I, I got, I was in battle and I was blown up in my tank, you know, like I was a tank guy. And I've never been the same since. I can't stop thinking about it and I wanna kill myself and drugs don't work. And I, and, and I, but I keep flashing on this experience of being like blown out of my tank, right? I, I, I can't stop. Well, when you go surfing and you wipe out or you have a, a, a good experience with it, your, your brain is briefly kind of derailed from that looping PTSD thing. And in those gaps between the looping recurrence of the trauma, the replaying of that tape to try to get it right, to try and survive, the brain gets a chance to write something else. And the rewriting, the neuro, the synaptic rewriting that occurs with surfing is made possible by the intensity of and the immersive power of surfing, right? Surfing brings a particular demand on the brain to pay the fuck attention or you're gonna drown, bro. You've gotta watch. And that's what's so great about surfing as a way out of various traumas is that you are required to pay attention because we're not meant to be out there exactly, right? With the kids on spectrum, um, it has the same ability to kind of reshape the, you know, this is very preliminary, these studies, but there's a sense of brain benefit. And there's also just the sense of integration of the senses integration like autism is about a dis is a kind of like there's some kind of like disequilibrium in the sense the way the senses are integrated and what the the neurochemical and then the synaptic is kind of benefited by surfing in ways that aren't obvious or aren't really clear yet but that's the way it reads fascinating yeah um How's, first of all, how's the book going? How are sales? Know, I, I don't know. And I don't, I, I try not to pay attention to that. I just like, I, I just am you know, moving on to my next book. I'm not really. Okay. How, I mean, how is it to write and sell books nowadays though? I mean. I don't know. You know, it's not good. It's <laughs> basically, it's very much like a casino. It's like some books blow up and most don't. Most, yeah. don't, mo most books don't pay back their advance, right? Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah, but you just, you get you get the opportunity to keep writing them, so you must be doing yeah. something, right? 
Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I like to think so. You know, but it's all very much book to book. You know, you, there's not a lot of loyalty from publishers at the level of Thad. We're going to invest in you, brother. We believe in you and whatever you do. So you've got to you've got to come out of the you've got to be you've got to write a book thinking this is going to be judged on its merits straight up. And if they don't, they, you have nothing to do with what you've done before. And if they don't think this is going to sell, it ain't going to get published. Right. That's all they. Who is Harper Wave? I would imagine they're a division of Harper, but the fact that they're called Wave is, I mean, do they just do surfing books or? Harper Wave is a, is a, an imprint within Harper Collins, which was started by an editor named Karen Rinaldi, who's a, who's a great editor and um, surfs. And she has done quite a few surf books. Um, and she did, you know, a Garrett McNamara memoir. And she did a book with Laird and she did a book. She does a lot of health books and, but she does, she has an interesting imprint. And so my book worked for that. You know, she, yeah. I had a, if you look at Harper Wave, you'll see that there are other books like mine, but yeah. I just thought uh, it has to be Harper Collins, but there can't be enough surfing books for them to dedicate a whole uh, <laughs> But apparently there are. Yeah. Good. Um, what's your current relationship like with surfing? I know you got a couple of young kids, but how often do you get to do it? I get to go maybe once a week, you know. Maybe. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to go this Tuesday. There's swell coming and I tend to be very challenged by super cold Jersey winters. But I'm going to go to Hawaii in December uh, for a couple of weeks. My mother lives on Maui. And uh, we're going to spend some time in Maui and Oahu. So I'm really excited about that. That's so I awesome. try to travel a bit in the winter if I can, you know, Puerto Good. Rico, Hawaii. Um, you talk about your kids in the book. You have a son and a daughter, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and you talk about surfing with them when they were really young, but are they interested at all in surfing at this point? Yeah, they're kind of, they're, they feel conversant with it but they're not like obsessed in the way of a real surfer. So it's hard to say, you know, like, I feel like if, they, if we lived in a surf town, we live near Manhattan, you know, we live outside New York city. You can see New York city from Montclair. If we lived down in Manasquan, I think they would be full on surfers, but because they are always going only in the warm months when I take them, they have all, all sorts of other things they do, but I just kind of wanted them to know to be out there and to feel comfortable and they basically achieve that. So Good. yeah. Cool. Um, what's your next, can you say what your next book is about? I'm writing a book about a surfer in witness protection. It's like a thriller. Fiction? Yeah, fiction, totally. Awesome, cool. And it comes out of this book, you know, all the stories I heard. Yeah, and the kind of drug world, underworld stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Um, the Rick Rasmussen. Yeah. <laughs> a story that never was. Um, the final question for everybody is just what was the last surfboard that you rode? The last surfboard I rode was my uh, round nose retro fish lost six, I think it's six one. It's really meaty. It's a it's a I get to wave catcher. It's a little too big for the shape, but I erred on the side of flotation because I'm old. Yeah, fair enough. That's what I do too. <laughs> awesome. 
Well, Thad, thank you so much. I apologize. It took me so long to get to the book, but um, I'm glad that I did. And I really, really enjoyed it. Well, thanks so much, David. It was a pleasure talking to you. I'm really glad you got around to reading it and uh, look forward to meeting you someday when I come out west and we can go surfing. Man, I want to come spend time in Jersey. Yeah, come. I have friends there and I've been there. I just never have got it, you know, when the waves are pumping. So yeah, let me know if you ever swing through. Will do. All right, man. All right. Have a good night. You too. Take care. Thanks. Qu'on voit danser Les langues des gorges A des reflets d'argent La mer Des reflets changeants Sous la pluie The Drop is available through Harper Wave at Amazon or anywhere that you purchase books nowadays. Uh, I highly recommend it. Again, there is a ton of surf history in here, um, and that alone is worth reading. But I do think that the topic of addiction, especially in the way that Thad um, discusses it, relates to everyone, not just addicts per se, but um, it's relatable for processing your own use of, you know, food, substance, whatever else, but more importantly, to help you kind of understand the world around you, the people around you. So grab The Drop wherever you buy books. We've linked to it, of course, on surfsplendorpodcast.com where you can see everything that Thad and I discussed. And there's also a comment section at the bottom of the page so you can leave a comment for Thad if you're so inclined. I will ensure that he gets that. Our listener community has been amazing. Uh, I could go on and on with examples, but most recently Derek Dunphy was talking about um, head trauma, concussions last week, and I received a number of messages, emails and direct messages from people who have had life-altering experience with concussions and recovering from concussions, and they provided some incredible insights and feedback that I've been able to share with Derek. So I appreciate all of that feedback every week. And I have a feeling that um, this conversation with Thad may expand in similar ways and probably be an ongoing theme that comes up in this podcast with future guests as well. So feel free to reach out with your insights in any platform, anytime. I thank you for doing so. I'm honored um, to be a part of these and just to provide a place for these conversations to happen. So we've got new episodes this week over on Spit and The Grit, if you're so inclined to listen to those. And then, of course, we'll be back on both those shows every week, next week. And then I'll be back here with a new episode of Surf Splendor. So my name is David Scales. For Surf Splendor, I am encouraging you to get back into the ocean, share a couple of waves, and, of course, shred off. Loving, loving, loving.
And don't forget to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash surf. That's linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.